Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast, the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to West Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. Jason Price, Energy Central podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, today's guest is Kevin Wales, who serves as CEO of Lincoln Electric Systems and serves on the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council. The CEO-led Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council serves as the principal liaison between the federal government and the electric power industry on efforts to prepare for and respond to national-level disasters or threats to critical infrastructure. The ESCC works across the sector, and with the Electricity Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the ESCC, ISAC to develop actions and strategies that help protect the North American energy grid and prevent a spectrum of threats from disrupting electricity service. So, Matt, I am sure our guests will go into some threat examples, but I believe you've compiled a list of threat examples just in the past few years. You want to share? Sure, Jason. You know, for many years, the types of threats to the power grid were almost commonplace. They comprised either natural disasters like hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, or others that put grid equipment at risk, or there were outages that would happen simply because of unexpected uh, equipment failure. In more modern times, though, these days, the industry has had to shift to recognize potential cybersecurity threats, bad actors, either internationally or even domestically, using the new digital aspects of the power sector to try to threaten or even take down the grid. The past year, we've started to see a rising number of examples of threats to physical grid safety as well, since you know, transformers and other equipment are often in the open air and vulnerable to attack. So as the power sector has become critical for health, safety, productivity, the potential risk has risen and that vulnerability has been challenged by bad actors on a consistent basis. So it makes that this fight against these threats really an existential and critical aspect for all stakeholders on the grid. That's a great summary, Matt. Thank you. So those challenges amount to utilities having to multitask to battle more threats to business, infrastructure, and the general industry landscape than they may have had to handle in the past, which is why one of the hallmarks of the power industry has long been collaboration. Information sharing and deployment of mutual aid are two key examples. And today we're going to learn about the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council or the ESCC and how this unique group is driving these opportunities forward. So we want to dive into some of that. So let's bring in Kevin Wales. Kevin, welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. Kevin, we're excited to have you on the podcast because this is an important topic. And we've covered this topic in the past, but not in this dimension. But I first want to give you a chance to talk about Lincoln Electric Systems, where you come from. Can you tell us a bit more about the area you cover and the types of projects you're bringing to your customers in today's fast-paced utility sector? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Lincoln Electric System is a public power utility serving Lincoln and the surrounding communities. Lincoln itself is a city of about 300,000, almost geographically centered in the continent 
continental United States. And although we're not a large utility with respect to when you compare the industry overall, when you look at public power systems, we're about the 23rd largest of the 2000 public power systems. And one of the thing, unique things uh, you may or may not know about Nebraska is it's an all public power state and it's the only one where every utility is a consumer owned utility, either a public power district, municipal electric utility, or uh, a rural electric co-op. So it is kind of an interesting environment in itself. LES has about 1300 megawatts of power supply resources. Interestingly for a municipal electric utility, those resources are located in six states. We have coal-fired resources in Wyoming and Iowa and Nebraska. We have wind projects in Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska. We have hydropower out of South Dakota. So we have a, a, a unique blend for a municipal electric utility. We're about one-third natural gas, one-third coal, and one-third renewables, with the renewables comprised of mostly wind and hydropower, but also includes solar and landfill gas. You know, as a public power utility, one of the things that's really primary for us is both reliability and affordable rates. We do a lot uh, basically checking metrics on those. For example, our five-year system average interruption duration index, which is kind of the average amount of time a customer might be out of power, is less than 20 minutes, and that compares to a national average of about 120 minutes. And that's mostly accomplished pretty aggressively addressing aging infrastructure, vegetation management, those types of things. But also from a rate perspective, we typically conduct national rate surveys. Uh, the most recent one, basically, and that looks at national uh, cities that are peer cities, as well as those that we would compete with for economic development and large metropolitan areas. We actually had the third lowest residential rates in that survey and about the 16th overall lowest rates. So we meet those metrics for public power pretty well. Like many or most utilities right now, we're also very concerned about decarbonization and the transition. We have reduced our CO2 emissions about 50% between 2010 and 2020. And we went from a period in 2010 of having about the equivalent of producing 10% of our retail, an equivalent of 10% of our retail energy to 45% of our retail energy equivalent right now from renewables. In 2020, our board adopted a net zero carbon emissions from our production facilities by 2040. So we are in that transition, looking at both electrification as well as decarbonization like most utilities are now. We completed uh, the most recent integrated resource plan last year and mapped out the plan about how we were going to try to get to that point. And really it's the next five years, we're going to be aggressively looking at some large uh, central station solar PV, as well as continuing a bunch of the programs that we have going now with respect to all phases of demand side management, renewable uh, generation, that type of thing for our customers. In, I guess it was about five years ago, we decided that we needed to know more about uh, the electric vehicle impact on our territory, because when we looked at what was out there for data, it really did not show anything in looking at kind of a Midwestern city. So we did an electric vehicle study at the time that involved about one third of the EVs that were registered in our county. That was basically to look at the charging characteristics that they would have. Uh, we had geofencing around the, the data. We had over 15 different models of EVs in the in the study. And it was really kind of told us what we thought what was going to be the result, which was that the EVs were charging mostly at night. But interestingly enough, of course, the COVID hit during the study and we had to kind of extend the study because we didn't feel that the second year of the study was uh, going to be particularly valid when we looked at the impacts of COVID. And when we extended the study, we also added a demand side component to it and basically a voluntary interruption process where we could request the customers basically a day in advance to not charge during certain periods. 
it was remarkable the kind of response we got just on a voluntary basis. We even deployed that during the 2021 Winter Storm URI event to help reduce demand. So it was kind of an interesting process at that time. We have recently, uh, in the last few years, we actually set up a microgrid in downtown Lincoln that serves everything from the Capitol or has capability to serve the Capitol, Justice Center, Federal Courthouse, Arena, the kinds of things that you would want to keep continuity of government and basically resources to provide the community in a disaster. And that includes not only a gas turbine that's located in that area, but also solar. Uh, we're in the process of adding, adding energy storage to that as well. The hope, of course, is that we would never have to use the microgrid, but we do think that it's a prudent type of thing to have to be able to not only prove it can be done, but in, in essence, to provide that kind of support for the community. We have a variety of demand-side management programs that we're working on and continuing to expand. Uh, everything from lighting incentives to heat pump incentives to a heat shaving program using kind of a bring your own thermostat concept. And those are, we continue to attune that program basically every year, make sure that we're getting kind of the most effective thing we can out of that. A few years ago, we decided that not only was net metering important, and we'd had that for years, but we expanded that to add a renewable generation rate to make it easier for customers who might want to do, for example, a solar garden and be able to sell us uh, power on that way rather than looking at straight net metering. We have a retail program for renewable energy credits, for example, so that we generate a lot of RECs or renewable energy credits, and we provide the opportunity for our customers to sign up online to buy those if they want to be able to identify that they have, in effect, made themselves uh, carbon-free. And uh, we have the, you know, we retire the RECs for them and give them that certification. We actually operate and manage a district energy corporation, which is basically a city, county-owned thermal energy utility, and that serves many of the governmental facilities and some of the downtown renovated area as well. So that's a pretty quick review, but uh, like <laughs> most utilities right now, we have a lot of those kinds of projects going on. It should never be overlooked how important and uh, transformative even our muni's and co-ops are going through in this uh, energy transformation. It's not just in the IOU domain. But we brought you in to talk about your role in the Coordinating Council, the uh, Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council. So start with a quick history of, of the background of the council, the formation of it, and what is the overall purpose of this council? Yeah, as you might recall, post 9-11, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security was established. And, and not long after that, I think somewhere around 2003 or four, they identified 16 critical infrastructures in the United States that they wanted to set up sector coordinating councils. And those included energy, financial services, communications, and healthcare, water, transportation, those types of things. And out of that, energy actually is split into two areas. One is electricity and the other is oil and natural gas. So that's why when you refer to the ESCC, it's the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council. And, you know, all of them had and still do have different structures. Originally for the ESCC, it was actually administered by North American Electric Reliability Corporation or Merck and was fairly small. It was, a you know, kind of had probably, I think, seven or eight members total, uh, three or four CEOs and NERC staff and worked basically with, you know, different parts of the uh, Department of Energy, which was at the time the sector-specific agency. In the early, I guess in 2012-2013, the industry was looking at getting, you know, looking at the national level threats, kind of as you mentioned, and disasters, was looking at trying to get a better integration 
working with and working relationship with the federal government and determined that the best way to do that was in effect to come up with a CEO group. At that time, wasn't even envisioned necessarily to be the SEC, but as that group developed, it made sense to basically turn the ESCC into this uh, CEO-driven group, which is uh, made up of about 31 industry CEOs from all three sectors, IOUs, the public power sector, and the rural electric sector. We Canada's included the trade association CEOs for basically EEI, APPA, NRECA are also on that group. And we also have the you know CEOs of NERC and EPRI and other organizations as well in that group of 31 to basically have a comprehensive group to be able to deal with our federal government partners at a high level. And originally, if you think about the time frame, was really when cybersecurity was becoming a more prevalent issue. As people were looking at the industry saying, why aren't you doing more? The industry was saying, gee, we don't have the same tools the federal government does, and we need to get a better partnership for that. So, you know, the kind of the beginning of that uh, was information sharing and particularly looking at those cyber threats as well. You know, meetings of the ESCC actually include what is termed as the ESCC meeting with the EGCC, which is the Energy Government Coordinating Council, which is basically ran by DOE. They've changed the reference now, so it's no longer sector-specific agency. It's the Sector Risk Management Agency. DHS is also a huge part of that, including uh, you know the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, certainly the Federal Energy Management Agency, or FEMA. The EGCC includes the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, National Security Council, the FBI, the Department of Defense, and a host of others that kind of come together in looking at how do we address national level threats to critical infrastructure. That's great. So it's evolved from its founding, both in formation and in just sort of the energy landscape. But tell us about the priorities and the actions. How has that evolved with the council? As I mentioned, the, the threats and information sharing were the critical issue when we started and getting that industry government coordination. And one of the first wins in those early days was basically getting, if you will, security clearances for the industry to be able to get that information in effect from the government as to what threats were and be better prepared and work to mitigate that. One of the other things that evolved pretty early on was that that relationship gave us better leverage on both sides, both, uh, I think, from the government response as well as the industry response for mutual aid. Uh, mutual aid had been around a long time, but in effect, um, it became obvious that the better that relationship was between the government and the utility industry gave us a much stronger ability to deal. And that kind of evolved in pretty early into just kind of a a process that we talk about being unity of effort, unity of message, so that in fact, when you get in these major national events, that the industry and the government are saying the same thing, which helps, of course, the public understand what's going on at that time. So that was kind of the early wins at that. And I and I might add that I think that there was a big win within the industry of getting the three major sectors of the industry, including a lot of the supporting agencies like NERC and the Federal Injury, getting everybody into the room periodically and getting those relationships, I think, um, made us much stronger as well. That kind of moved on to looking at cross-sector coordination. Best example, I would think, is, is kind of what the natural gas industry is pretty critical to the electricity sector now, and even more so when you look at the transition and decarbonization. Cyber mutual aid was something that popped out early on, and that sounds pretty obvious, but you know, I think we all realized that we'd been doing mutual aid in the industry for years, but in 
effect, we kind of recognize that if you had a major cyber event that was basically impacting certain utilities, there may not be enough bandwidth within those utilities to handle that, just like uh, there isn't necessarily depending on the kind of natural disaster that you have. So the Cyber Mutual Aid Group was developed out of that. Their preparedness exercises were uh, a big issue, and probably the most significant one directly for the industry is GridX, which happens every two years, and it's a process run by uh, NERC. You know, having the, at the time we go through those exercises, and particularly at the end of those, there's hot wash involving basically the, the government and the industry talking about, okay, what are the things that went well and what are the things we need to work on as far as expanding the capabilities, either utilities or the government or together trying to figure out how we better mitigate issues that have, have come up. One of the things that was developed uh, fairly early on, but continues to be updated by the SCC is a playbook, which is basically a framework for response and recovery and communication during major events. And you know, one of the things that was a huge issue a few years ago for the industry was COVID response. There was a, you know, a tiger team was developed and a resource guide was developed. And this group worked continually helping the industry work through kind of best practices for all of us in dealing with COVID, because obviously there's a large portion of our industry couldn't be sent home and we needed to try to figure out the best ways to deal with that as well. Recently, a wildfire working group has been formed that works with other different parts of the government involved in wild, wildfire mitigation. And most recently, of course, uh, we have a supply chain working group that's a Tiger team that works, uh, is working in concert with the Department of Energy as well. Well, thank you for that. That's really interesting. It, it illustrates that both the diversity and the complexity as our industry continues to evolve and mature, the, the nature of the problems and challenges continue to evolve as well. I can say in the past year, cybersecurity and security in general of our infrastructure has creeped into the conversation far more in our third year at Power Perspectives than in the first two years of running the podcast. Many of our guests take note and pause and reflect on some of the challenges that they're facing, these creeping new challenges that have come up, especially with the outbreak of the Ukraine war. So with that, I'd like to dig into that a little further. Let's talk about some of the specifics that are going on today. And let's take security, both cybersecurity and also physical security into the spotlight, especially after recent events in the past, let's say 12 to 18 months. So what are some of the tangible actions that the ESCC has been undertaking to emphasize the necessary security practices across the utilities with these types of events. I think as you mentioned early on, the, the EISAC or the Electricity Information Sharing Analysis Center is really the kind of the center of that for the industry. And the SEC has been involved with the ISAC for several years and having the industry engaged with that, making it more effective. But when you look on the, first on the cyber side, it's really been a continual process of developing better tools, working both with the ISAC and with our federal government partners. Obviously, the information sharing regarding threats is critical. As I said before, the security clearances helped that a lot, but the development of tools range clear back to several years ago. There was CRISP, the Cyber Risk Information Sharing Program. There's several other tools evolving and some that have been, you know, kind of we've moved past as we're doing that. But you may have seen that there's basically the ETAC. Uh, now, the Energy Threat Analysis Center is something that's being basically piloted as well. So there's a lot of tools out there that are evolving. I would say in general, when you look at the industry, you know, we, you all probably know that we are the only industry really that has mandatory standards with respect to cyber cybersecurity and physical security. You know, we're subject actually to fines, to a million dollars a day per offense for that. But I think everyone views that as the floor. And so from an industry perspective, this has been on the forefront of cyber and physical for years for us. Certainly recently with the physical threats that we've seen are not necessarily new, but I think they're different than we've experienced before because 
years ago, it was not necessarily unusual to have somebody randomly shoot insulators or probably more kind of mischief than malicious. Obviously, what our concern is, what we're seeing now from the physical security issue is what appeared to be some planned and intentional malicious events to cause specific disruption. And that's challenging when you look at, for example, the substations when we have, depending on which count you're looking at, between 60 and 70,000 substations in the country, many of them in very rural and very remote areas where even the best of intention with respect to protecting is challenging. I think most utilities in particularly have addressing on a risk profile, looking at those substations that would be at higher risk, continuing to expand the security with respect to those. I think CISA has done a good job in putting information out. The trade associations, which are an integral part of the SEC, do a good job of getting information out with respect to those best practices as we continue to watch that process evolve. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned earlier about supply chain. Since COVID, supply chain has been top of mind and in the spotlight. What do you see as the outlook and what role is ESCC playing to mitigate these hurdles for your peers across the industry? I think from an industry perspective, many of us have been working a couple of years where we were ramping up, being more aggressive in ordering. A little over a year ago, the, the ESCC formed a tiger team of industry reps and uh, working with the Department of Energy to gather additional data, actually working with the trades with respect to the status of where things were, working basically also, in effect, talking to manufacturers, trying to identify what the key impediments uh, and potential mitigation measures were with respect to particularly transformers. I think there's labor, materials have been huge issues. And of course, workforce issues are impacting us in many different ways. This one probably is more aggravating because of the lead times for transformers going out. What used to be 12 weeks, uh, 12 to 16 weeks is in many cases a year and a half or more for distribution transformers. Some of the things that are identified and considered for mitigation is some levels of standardization. Some of the manufacturers I've identified that they've got 4,000 configurations of distribution transformers, for example, that when they receive basically bids from companies, that is a challenge in itself when you're trying to accelerate and address a supply chain issue. For example, I think virtually every, every one of the sector has developed different kinds of databases for transformer types. So you, in fact, can have better information flow among utilities about who has what. The mitigation to a large extent is looking at, can we get basically a little more standardization in the industry with respect to that? And then there's a question of, does that, should that be coming from the transform manufacturers and saying, you know, here's our, our Ford XLT version transformer. And if you want the special King Ranch version of a transformer, you're going to have to pay more. It's going to take longer. Or should the industry be trying to get together and come up with what the standard configurations are? So there's a lot of work going on in that area as it relates to transformers, which in many cases is one of the most significant pieces. I, you know, we see it in conductor holes, a lot of things as well, but I think the one that probably is driving the most concern really has been the distribution transformers. Kevin, talk about the functioning of the council and the relationship it has with the federal government. We talked about that relationship and that communication has been key and I think continues to build the advantage of both the federal government and the industry. A good example of that is hurricane response. After the ESCC was formed, when there are kind of national level global disasters, when you're prepping for it, you see it coming in, and as it's evolving, there will be calls that will be set up. I think the most impressive part of that is the kind of engagement we get, obviously, the industry, the impacted utilities or ones are going to be impacted so that they're reporting in. But it's also the people that are a lot of high-level folks in the administration and in the government that participate in those calls. It's not unusual that when you have those, you've got the Deputy Secretary of Energy, uh, sometimes even the Secretary. Same thing with respect to Homeland Security. You get FEMA executives 
executives to get folks from the White House that actually get on these calls as well on quite short notice to make sure that not only is their preparation, there's always a part of those meetings that say, you know, what are people's needs, what are unmet needs, and to address things that the government can help facilitate or that the peer utilities can help facilitate. So it's that dynamic, which again, we had mutual aid for years, but we didn't have anything that had that kind of coordination and attempt to make sure that provide the best response for our customers. And of course, recognizing those threats have broad implications when you lose power in natural disasters. Kevin, I don't know if I asked this question, but how long have you been serving on the council? I've been on it since it was formed in 2012, 13. Is this a position that's compensated? No, no, it's, it's, it's a- volunteer and it's in effect the three trade associations, which are DEI, APPA, and NRCA, basically appoint members. There's a certain number of members from each actually basically representing the kind of the percentage of the electric customers that are served in this country. So for example, the public power sector has four representatives, NRCA has four representatives on that. And the investor-owned community has, I think, 16 or 17. And then, of course, the rest of it's the trades and NERC and for, as identified. And so it is, I think, important just to see that it is, although it seems large in 31, it still has the ability to be relatively effective in both communicating and moving forward on issues that we have to deal with. It's a remarkable council, and I've learned a ton here. I think that there's going to be a, an electric superhero hall of fame. Your face will be the first on the uh, the mantle as you walk in. I mean, this is just incredible. I feel like not many people necessarily know this, and you're probably an underappreciated group of people who are really being vigilant to our grid. So I thank you for your service and, and helping lead this. Well, thanks. We're all just a group of people trying to make sure that, in effect, we're addressing threats and, in effect, leverage both our communication as an industry and the communication with our federal partners. And I don't really think we want to have a high profile. We just want to make sure that we all can do the best we can for basically our customers. Okay, Kevin, on that note, we do want to learn more about you as the person, not just a professional. So we have something called the lightning round where we pivot to a a set of questions. Typically, you leave the response to one word or phrase. So are you ready? Yes. Okay, question number one. What was one of the most impactful moments you've experienced in our industry? I'm going to break the word or sentence. One of them, I think, is when you you're participating and mentoring somebody, and then you see them become successful executives in the industry, either at your utility or another utility. And the other side of that, you can't take the engineer out of me, is when you've done a project, maybe it's a power plant project, and you went through the resource planning and all the permitting and the construction. So you've taken seven or eight years, and you finally see the the project become commercial. To me, those are kind of tied for being the best moments you get. If you could reset any situation, what would it be and why? This may seem a little out of our lane, but political divisiveness, it has an impact on the industry when we're all addressing things like uh, electrification, decarbonization, and people are assigning political reasons for it. If we could get rid of political divisiveness, I think it would help lots of things. If you were to have taken a different career path, what do you think you would be doing? Probably a lawyer. Most utility executives or engineers think that they would have been lawyers and most lawyers think they would have been engineers their industry as well. What are you most driven by? It sounds a little corny, but public power. I just believe in the model of you know locally owned, locally governed, affordable, high value rates, high reliability, and customer engagement where, in effect, the way we operate our utilities reflects the values of our community. Kevin, much appreciate the thoughtful uh, responses throughout this entire last uh, half hour. I want to give you the final word. So if our listeners are, should walk away with uh, one principle or a thought that you want to leave us with, what would that be? Well, presuming our, your listeners are in the industry, it seems to me that for years we have evolved into having a huge 
huge culture of safety in our industry that's much different than it was 30 years ago. I would argue that cyber and physical security, we have to develop that same culture. I believe we have internally to LES, but I think it's something that it's everybody in the organization, just like safety, I think needs to uh, be very proactive in, in the physical and cybersecurity culture. That was fantastic. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for the entire conversation. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. No doubt that our community of uh, listeners and at Energy Central will appreciate everything that you've shared. And I'm sure that so many of them will be in touch with you and posting questions and comments. So until then, thanks again for sharing your insight on today's episode of the podcast. Thanks for having me. We also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsors that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data and analytics, and cybersecurity. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com and we'll see you next time at the energy central power perspectives podcast